A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome to the second episode from me, Kev O'Keefe and Colin Ferguson. Thanks for all your feedback and offers to help and our guest list and topics continue to expand. You'll be relieved to know that we will cut back on our acronyms and try and explain some of the military terms and jargon for our non-military listeners. We've called this series The Unconventional Soldier, as unconventional warfare doesn't just belong to special forces. And throughout history, there are many examples of units being raised to conduct specialist operations all over the world. One such unit is 473 Special OP Battery, which was raised in 1982 at the height of the Cold War. The concept of operations involved a stay-behind role in which specially selected teams of six men would dig in a large underground shelter known as a Mexi. They would then allow the Warsaw Pact units to pass over them before emerging to deploy two dug-in observation posts from which they would engage follow-on forces with the guns and rocket launchers of the British Army. Our first ever guest is Major General Anthony Stone, CB, who is the founder of the Special Observer Concept and in this episode, Colin and I will in conversation with the General get to understand the necessity for this role during the Cold War, the challenges he faced getting this concept across the line, the formation of the unit and his view on the battery since its formation. Welcome, General, to the second episode of The Unconventional Soldier. And just before we delve into the history of the Special Observer, we're asking all our guests to provide a bio of their military careers. So, General, over to you. Well, Cab and Colin, thank you both very much, not only for your idea about this podcast, but the energy in getting it all off the ground. Uh, Quite a task with a lot of work to do, and I thank you both very much. And it's going to be a great pleasure to record some of the events that have shaped our history and I look forward to it very much. So, General, then, how did your army career start? Well, I should perhaps say that notwithstanding the title of this podcast, Unconventional Soldier, that doesn't really describe me at all. I followed a pretty conventional career path, which is in and out of regimental duty and staff jobs, Ministry of Defence, overseas, UK, and so on. Um, but perhaps, as many of you may have guessed, I'm originally from an army family. My father, both grandfathers, 
and all before them were soldiers, and I was therefore expected to follow suit. But I was determined to be an architect, and I wanted to break the family's military mould. And so it all started, really, when I left school in uh, 1957. Yeah, that's 63 years ago. And first of all, I needed some time out to do a few jobs in order to raise a bit of money before going up to university. And I began by working in a power station, wearing a smart white full-length coat, carrying a millboard and walking round an enormous wall of dials and, and uh, switches and God knows what, um, recording temperatures and voltages and really find feeling quite important, but actually I was nothing more than a dog's body. So I gave that up and went to Oulton Park in Cheshire to try my skills at motor racing. I was quite sure that I was going to be um, Sterling Moss within about a week, but that didn't work out either. And although I changed from a white coat to greasy overalls, I wasn't much good at motor racing. So then, really needed some money quickly, and I joined a large bakery. I think it was Mother's Pride, something like that, wearing a stupid white apron and cap, uh, shoveling dough and bread and pushing trolleys and goodness knows what, and made quite a bit of money there uh, before I finally undertook some work experience in normal clothes at the firm of architects that I had been working with beforehand and who I hoped would launch my university career. But you uh, obviously you did become an architect. So why didn't you become an architect? What changed your mind? Well, I suppose in the last week before leaving them, the senior partner at the architectural firm called me into his office. And uh, it came as quite a shock because he said, uh, this is not serious. Uh, you shouldn't pursue a career as an architect because you're colorblind, aren't you? And I said, well, yes, I am colorblind, but what the hell difference does that make? And he said, well, being an architect is not drawing um, floor plans of houses. It's designing houses and putting them into the context of the trees and the buildings and the stonework. And, and he said, you're not going to make it. So I thought, my God, a serious change of plans required here. Well, I was pretty deeply disappointed, as you can imagine. So I turned back to my father for advice. He was, of course, delighted that I wasn't going to be an architect. And he said, unsurprisingly, join the army. But he said, before you go to Sandhurst, I want you to do a spell in the ranks, because there's no point in becoming an officer until you understand what a soldier's life is like and how they operate. And you should do a period in the ranks to learn about life as a young soldier. So that's what I did. So uh, what regiment was your father in? My father was in the East Surrey Regiment, uh, which was, interesting enough, the first regiment in the British Army to operate uh, off ships, and that's why they wore a blue lanyard. Uh, they eventually became the Queen's, and, uh, or the Queen's Re Queen Surrey Regiment, then the Queen's, and I'd, God knows what they are now. There have been so many changes, but uh, uh, a firm infantryman originating in the East Surrey Regiment. So what was, what was your service like as an other rank? Well, it began in 58 uh, when I became 2367, 6397, Sapperstone. And I spent a thoroughly enjoyable, worthwhile and really a foundation laying four months as a private soldier in the Royal Engineers. And all that came with that, undergoing full basic training as a private soldier. But it was a very different army than today. Bear in mind at that time, there were no Land Rovers, just Austin Champs. There was no combat kit. We wore fatigues or battle dress and we carried... Lee Enfield number four rifles. It was really pretty dad's army looking back on it. So it's, it's interesting, General, that the IDF insists that all people wanting to be officers in Israeli Defence Forces should undertake basic training with all other soldiers. 
Um, from your experience, do you think that worked with the British Army or is it even a concept that you would support? I would support it wholeheartedly because uh, to drift in, as many do from either public school or university, straight to Sandhurst, which today is pretty short. I think it's something like 10 months. Mine was a full two years. But to drift straight in from that privileged background to become an officer and start um, uh, believing that you're something special, I think is rather sad. Uh, I'd like to think that um, all officers or potential officers did some time in the ranks. It doesn't have to be long, but to learn what it's all about there before they start becoming officers. Yeah, it's an interesting, probably quite controversial uh, I think concept. So, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, I can see the utility to, of it for sure. Yeah. So your father was in the infantry. You spent time as a sapper. What drew you to, what drew you to the gunners? Uh, well, as I mentioned, Sandhurst was two years. I started in January '58, and having done the sort of basic training in the engineers, I really th- thought I knew all about it. But I suppose within days of uh, guards drill instructors under the pretty famous uh, regimental sergeant major Jackie Lord, and PTIs who were the best in the world, and QMSIs who made weapon training absolute hell, I realised that life was going to be pretty hard. And two years. Again, as an officer cadet, very much a private soldier, being chased from pillar to post, um, gave me a lot of time to think. It was fantastic training, but I had a lot of time to think. So during that two years, um, at the end of year one, you're invited to think about your future regiment. Where would you like to go? And although I'd come from um, a brief spell in the sappers and my father and grandfathers were all infantry, um, I, I had a pretty open mind, but it was pretty clearly made up. My college commander was a charismatic gunner called Brigadier Johnny King Martin, um, a really remarkable um, and and pretty successful uh, senior officer. He had um, a very attractive daughter, and we used to go at weekends to have uh, lunch at his house. He also had an amazing wife, lovely wife. Uh, And it was his job as the senior gunner at Sandhurst to persuade officers or potential officers to join his regiment. Well, I didn't take much persuading, so I became a gunner, much to my father's disgust, I might say. Uh, <laughs> he was uh, uh, the adjective bloody gunners um, when he was an infantryman. But anyway, at least I was in the army and not an architect. So uh, it was a pursuit of women, you could say then, General. <laughs> sorry? Say that again, sorry? It was a pursuit of women that drove you to the gunners. Oh, I wouldn't tell you that, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's interesting you mention RSM Law because, as you say, legendary figure, but I think not as well known these days as perhaps he should be. Um, he was a former guards uh, senior NCO who transformed, who transformed, who transferred to the newly formed parachute regiment during World War Two, and he was the first regimental sergeant major of three para, and post-war was the first academy sergeant major at the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. Um, he fought with three para all the way up through North Africa and Sicily, uh, and he was captured at Arnhem. Uh, from Arnhem, he was sent to Stalag 11B, and when he got there, he found a place that was deep in squalor, and many of the prisoners had been captured round Dunkirk. And reading up on a few things that RSM Law did, he was obviously a man of intense drive and uh, standards, and through a determined effort, he instilled discipline into the camp and turned it around. Um, for example, he set up some he set up proper burial parties and so much so that the turnout of the prisoners shamed the Germans into improving their own turnout. 
Another thing he did was that he insisted that German, German officers were saluted, but with the caveat that the word bollocks was uttered at the same time as his salute was thrown up. <laughs> <laughs> and in 63, he gave a very good talk on discipline and leadership to the academy. Uh, and um, one of the things that he said there that he used to tell the cadets that Jesus Christ may be the Lord above, but he was a Lord on the parade square at Sandhurst. <laughs> So obviously a man of uh, deep principle. His lecture in 1963, if you read through it, it still stands. It's a fantastic piece. And I'll put some links on our Facebook page about RSM Lord uh, for people to look at. He was an amazing man. I mean, he was a grenadier. Uh, He stood about, I don't know, six foot two. Um, And one of the other interesting things he did in uh, prison war camp was um, pull up some floorboards, quite a lot of floorboards, and had them carved into rifles, and he he formed a sort of guard of honour with rifles. So not only did they salute uh, the German officers uh, with the word bollocks on the end of it, but they also did uh, arms drill with um, uh, weapons made out of uh, floorboards. I mean, quite a striking thing to do, uh, but it it brought discipline to an otherwise shambolic um, prisoner war camp. And and by all accounts, uh, the the Germans were terrified of him as well. (laughs) (laughs) Very hard, yes. (laughs) <laughs> so after Sanders then General and you moved to your first post in the Gunners what was that like your new life well from straight from Sandhurst you go to the um, YO's course the young officers course at Lark Hill I can't even remember how long it was now but that again was pretty punishing because you were treated like dirt which of course you were one shiny pip on your shoulder second lieutenant and some pretty serious AKIG sorry assistant instructors of gunnery and uh, gunnery officers and teaching you all about gunnery, which, of course, you've not learned at Sandhurst because that was all arms training, whereas we now got onto the gunner stuff. So I did that on the wires course, then went to my first regiment, which was uh, 21 medium regiment up in North Wales with enormous 5.5-inch medium guns. But I was in there about, uh, I don't know, a couple of months because uh, the regiment was disbanded, and I was sent very briefly to 22 locating battery, uh, um, uh, something with sound-ranging bases and mortar-locating radars, that sort of stuff, um, which was pretty boring, I have to say. They were in Perham Down. So I volunteered to lead an expedition across North Africa. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to, to get that, and uh, with a party of soldiers and one other officer, uh, we went out to North Africa to Bir Haleg El Alibra and drove across the desert to the Kufra Oasis, which was 500 miles across the Sahara, in temperatures where you fried your egg on the bonnet of the Land Rover and so on. It was pretty memorable and very character-building. We enjoyed it enormously. I remember I had a signal sergeant, and for some reason there was an immensely important football match on while we were in the desert. I'm not a football fan, so I didn't remember what it was. It might have been a World Cup or something. And he used Met balloons um, and uh, a T-shaped aerial. He put up the Met balloons in the air, attaching wires to them, and right up high in the sky, he put up an aerial and managed to get um, the uh, football on, I think it was a 19-set radio. Pretty amazing. But that's what signal sergeants could do. And can't escape football in the desert. That's my worst nightmare, that. <laughs> <laughs> so after your turn, at, after that expedition, what was next? Well, my first tour in 5th Regiment, I spent a lot of time in 5th Regiment, um, and this was my first tour with them. They were also in Perham Down, and they were an interesting regiment because they were in the Strategic Reserve, as it was called, 
and they had gun sheds which were packed with an extraordinary selection of, of gunnery. We had 5.5-inch medium guns, which I was used to, 105mm Abbott's self-propelled guns, old 25-pounders, brand-new 105mm pack howitzers, and a few 4.2-inch mortars. And we were supposed to uh, take whatever kit we needed, um, depending on the operation we were sent to. It was quite remarkable. But as gunners, if you can fire one gun, you can fire them all, given about an hour's drill. Um, so that was that. But it was during my time with FIFS uh, that I was selected for posting to 7RHA in, in Aldershot. And uh, having completed key, P Company, that wretched subject, colour blindness, came in once again, and it caught up with me. And I was told that I was medically below standard for airborne forces, so I was facing yet another move. Well, this time, because I was intensely fit at that time, as you might imagine, um, the CEO of Seven Para said, uh, 17 training regiment in Oswestry is the place for you. He knew the CEO well, and all they did up there was physical. It snowed in every week, plenty of potholing, canoeing, rock climbing, abseiling, endless cross-country running in the Brecon Beacons, all good stuff for a young subaltern. And we were training the last of the National Service conscripts, uh, who were fading out at that time, and the first of the new regular army professional soldiers. So it was, it was a great tour and a huge regiment. I mean, I think there were 26 subalterns in the regiment. So you can imagine it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, well, from there, I moved to 40 regiment in Bulford. Uh, and then they moved to Goodersloe before I moved again, this time to 2-2 to regiment, which was an air defense regiment in Hubelrath, uh, which is near Dusseldorf. And from there, we were put on uh, seven days notice to move, then 48 hours notice, and then 24, and blow me. Within a week, we were on planes uh, heading out to Malaya and Borneo uh, for the confrontation uh, issue, which was going on between Borneo and Malaysia. But uh, that ended quite quickly before we returned then to Tonfanai in Wales. That was by this time 67. And we were tasked to prepare for and run the Prince of Wales investiture in Carnarvon. So that was... Uh, quite a race through a number of regiments in a few years, all with remarkably different roles and different tasks to carry out. It's interesting you mentioned Malay and Borneo because they are very much those sort of withdrawal from empire uh, campaigns and both of them quite largely forgotten. But Malaya especially has been was very influential at the time, especially with the America who copied many of its tactics uh, in Vietnam. Uh, for example, uh, the concept of hearts and minds and winning over the locals was developed by the British in Malaya. Uh, likewise, a relocation of the civilian population into protected villages, and actually saw the first use of defoliants such as Agent Orange to deforest and deny areas and supply lines to uh, the insurgent forces. There was also a, an aerial bombardment campaign, very similar to what the Americans did in Vietnam as well. Um, and though these concepts were controversial both in Vietnam and uh, Malaya, uh, they didn't really they weren't like, successful in Vietnam as they were for the British for a number of reasons. And also, again, you've got uh, General uh, Frank Kitson's book, Low Intensity Operations, Subversion, Peacekeeping and Insurgency, which has been a hugely influential book throughout the decades as well. And last little nugget for there as well, it's also led to the reformation of 2-2 SES in 1950 at the start of the Malaya campaign because uh, it was disbanded at the end of World War II and there were over 500 Commonwealth casualties there. So it's, uh, after speaking to the General there, I'll, it's inspired me to look it up and maybe get a campaign in that book because it seems quite interesting with all those sort of facts and figures there. It was interesting indeed, but we, we were, of course, um, posted out there when the Malaysia 
um, uh, operation was over. This was confrontation with Borneo, uh, which was a follow-on operation. Um, but it was interesting. Uh, I was going out there with an air defence regiment. It was quite a small regiment, 22 regiment, two batteries only. And we put one battery in Singapore and the other battery in Kuching um, uh, in uh, Borneo. And um, there was no air threat. So we had absolutely no job to do. Uh, I remember in the Singapore battery, we deployed um, 40, 70 um, air defence guns on the lawn of the of the British Embassy, which didn't go down awfully well. Um, but across in, in Borneo, in Kuching, we, we, uh, we were issued with 4.2-inch mortars. Um, and again, harping back to 5th Regiment days, uh, that was one of the weapons we had, and, and it was dead easy to convert from a 40-70 to a, a 4.2-inch mortar. And we did um, pretty close in. Um, jungle patrols uh, taking the 4-2 mortars out with us and uh, um, there were so many infantry out there there was really not a great deal for us to do um, the, the deep patrols in the jungle were all done by the infantry uh, and one of our PSIs later on uh, in 473 battery was uh, a pretty famous uh, chap from uh, out there who was uh, ambushed, shot, um, and left. He, he decided to uh, stay behind, and his, his SAS companions agreed, and they left him there. And he crawled for five days with bullets in his stomach and managed to get out. A remarkable story. Um, and perhaps we'll come on to him at some other stage. Um, so uh, confrontation ended pretty quickly. The, the, the um, uh, Indonesians gave up. Uh, in a very short space of time, and it was all over. We retired back to um, Singapore and up to uh, Tampin in Malaya and just played golf at the Dunlop Rubber Clubs, which was rather good fun. <laughs> <laughs> Not, uh, nice. But, but a lot of operation, we talked about this before, a lot of operations of short bursts of intensity and excitement, followed by large periods of boredom and routine, which I think I think it stands today as well. I think that's true, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned obviously you you were going to return back for the investiture for the Prince of Wales uh, because was it your regiment was going to be preparing and running that? That's right. Uh, after we left uh, the Far East, we came straight back to um, a tiny little camp uh, in Tonfanai, near where the Outward Bound School is in Wales, on the coast of Merionethshire. And we were to be the administrative regiment for um, the investiture, which was being held up in Carnarvon. Um, nobody thought, I suppose, that the road between Tom Vanai in Merionethshire and Carnarvon Castle was probably the worst in the world. Uh, and uh, it was pretty difficult getting up and back there doing various jobs. But I didn't manage to stay for the investiture because um, before the investiture took place, I was posted to the South College in Camberley for a two-year stint there. Um, and so I missed uh, the investiture uh, completely. Uh, but out of South College came the first of my uh, many tours in Whitehall in the Ministry of Defence. And I joined the Rapier Project Team, the Rapier Air Defence Missile System. And I was the SO2 Project Officer, sorry, Staff Officer Grade 2 Project Officer uh, on that team. Uh, and we were deployed pretty quickly to Woomera in Australia for the live firing tri trials out there. Uh, we flew from UK via Canada, Hawaii, and Fiji. And uh, typically, the RAF managed to break down in both Hawaii and Fiji, where we waited. <laughs> well, no, I didn't complain. We waited there for spares for several days on each on each of the islands, and I didn't complain. Um, 
But uh, on arrival in uh, Australia, there was nowhere to live, so I lived in the in the officers club in Adelaide and travelled up to the Woomera range every day in a little light aircraft flown by British Aerospace. So that was a pretty good daily commute. I enjoyed that. Sounds like a rough post in that one. I oh, I'm just very, thinking, that very sounds, hard. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> so how, how long was it before you got back to like, regimental life, back to the command side? Uh, well, that was one of these typical uh, staff tours. So it was time to go back to regimental duty. And so in 1974... Uh, I went back to 5th, this time as a battery commander, and that included an Alt-Banner tour in Londonderry, uh, and following that on return to Germany by an internal move in the regiment from battery commander to second in command of the regiment. And then after I completed that tour, it was back again to the Ministry of Defence, this time in the staff duties branch, sort of reading and uh, going through briefs day after day after day for two years. Well, I was lucky enough uh, on completing that to pick up half-colonel, and I moved to join the directing staff at the Military College of Science at Shrivenham. And I spent a couple of years there before I moved back to 5th Regiment again, this time as commanding officer. Uh, By now it was 1980, and I took over command of the regiment in the Grand Central Central Hotel in Belfast, um, where the regiment was uh, on yet another banner tour from Hildesheim. And it was here, of course, in Hildesheim that the special OP stories began. But more of that later, I suppose. So it's interesting that uh, Kev and I both completed separate operational tours of Londonderry in the late 1980s. And back in the late 1980s, it was a very demanding and hostile environment. Um, what was it like a few years after Bloody Sunday in 1972 in the tour that you did? Well, 74, the first tour, was um, pretty quiet, uh, we were uh, living in Hawkins Street Police Station uh, in the Fountains Estate and um, really patrolling in the Bogside and the Cregan and the city centre, the Diamond. We had um, uh, riots, minor riots, very often led by women in the in the centre of Derry, in the, in the Diamond. Uh, and we had a few shootings, uh, a few bombs. The Chinese restaurant in the centre of, of uh, Derry it seemed to be picked up about once a fortnight. Um, and I remember the last time, we'd had about three bombs there, and the last time um, there was a skip outside which was collecting the rubbish from previous bombings, and somebody reported at the top of the skip that in the top of the skip there was a cobble box with wires, uh, and my battery star major was uh, X-29 commando, and he and I went up to the square to have a look and see what was going on. And he said, there it is, uh, Colonel. Uh, you can see it at the top, there's a cardboard box with wires coming out. And uh, I said, yeah, let's call in Ato and have a look. No, no, no. He said, it's a hoax. I said, how do you know that? He said, well, I can tell by the wires. So I said, um, come on then, let's, let's go a bit closer and have a look. So we went a bit closer and he said, it's definitely a hoax. So I said, uh, I still think we should call Ato. No, 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 no. He said, uh, with that, he leapt into the top of the, uh, of the um, uh, skip and pulled the wires out of this box. And he said, I told you I was right. <laughs> so he got away with that. Uh, lucky. Were you backing away at that moment when you started to pull uh, Sort it? of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, right. Um, so that was, I suppose, back to the proper soldiering bit. Um, uh, what else? Back to Whitehall again after that, I think. Um, I, I finished then in fifth and went back to uh, Whitehall in the concepts team this time doing sort of fascinating work on a range of um, 
or future tri-service ideas, one of which was the, the tilt-rotor Osprey, wonderful plane, I thought, and we never got it for some reason. Another was the early drones, and the third was the Hercules replacement, which, <laughs> considering that was back in about, God knows, the uh, um, early 80s, I, I was astonished to see that the A400M, as it now is, didn't come into service until pretty recently, really. So um, it takes a long time. Well, after that, I, I picked up full kernel and, and moved back to um, uh, Military College of Science uh, as uh, the Director of Studies, um, which was another good tour and a place which I was pretty familiar with. Shame about the Osprey. I mean, I was on it a few times in Afghan when I was a civil servant. Absolutely fantastic bit of kit because the US Marines were in direct support and it's definitely one of their bits, best bits of kit. Great aircraft, yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely. What a concept as well. It could move really quickly. You know, um, you could... Had a very move. difficult uh, bringing into service or a lot yeah, of yeah. accidents eventually. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And incredibly yeah. expensive. Yeah, yeah. But, but so versatile and fast. I mean, mm, mm. once you once you took off and then it, it, it obviously it, uh, uh, tilted its wings and became a, a propeller aircraft, it could really push around the AO really quickly. It was mm. a mm. fantastic piece of kit. So clearly... Um, there's a pattern beginning, obviously, with, with, with equipments and weapons and, and a projects officer. Was that the direction you wanted to go down? Well, to a certain extent, yes. I was fascinated by equipment and uh, all the technical aspects of it. Um, and it was therefore a, a pretty nice surprise when I was promoted to brigadier to follow that progression and to become the MED's Director of Operation Requirements, DOR, Dorland 2, as it was known. And here I was responsible, amongst many other future equipments, for finalizing the operation requirements. Um, we used to write them in that branch to write exactly what the user wanted for the future. And I finalized the operation requirements for Challenger 2, Warrior, AS-90, and MLRS, all systems which, interestingly enough, I became involved with later on on the procurement side. Well, after the big stuff, I moved on to the smaller equipment as Director Light Weapons, where among a mass of uh, interesting projects, including a lot of stuff for Northern Ireland and for Special Forces, I undertook all the trials for SA-80, controversial weapon. I did the cold trials in Alaska, as Norway was by that time too warm. We did the hot-wet in Darwin in Australia and the hot-dry trials in Oman. Uh, and it was trialed pretty well. Just just for the, the listeners, when I... I'm just going to go back over. Obviously, the SA was the uh, the in-service or the new rifle that was coming in service. And uh, MLRS, the multi-launch rocket system, because uh, one of our many comments we've had is um, some of our listeners are non-military and are trying to understand some of the things that we're trying to tell them. To be Sorry, fair, I think I've done pretty well today. Oh, my yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> my well, fault. Well, mainly that was you last time. <laughs> Well, AS-90 was our, was our artillery systems for the 90s gun, 155mm self-propelled gun, which uh, um, we, we got in uh, the 90s. So you were still a few years away from retirement. So how did you fill the, 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 the final tours of your long career? Well, uh, by now it was about 1989, and I was lucky enough to be selected for promotion to Major General, and I was appointed then as Director General Land Systems, um, responsible for all 
land equipment uh, for the British Army. Now, this included a tour, a Gulf, not a tour, a Gulf War One uh, appointment in Kuwait, to which I flew on Christmas Day, which was the most bizarre experience. Um, first of all, flying out uh, to a war zone on Christmas Day. Secondly, I was flying with the Chief of the General Staff and his team. And thirdly, we were first class in the front of a jumbo jet, a British Airways jumbo jet. There was no RAF flight available. Um, and sitting in the, about, about eight of us, maybe 10, in the front end of a, of a jumbo with all that that uh, entailed, I mean, magnificent front end of an aircraft. Uh, we were in combat kit um, and we traveled out with all the lovely food. We didn't get the glass of champagne, I, my dad. And when we arrived at, um, at Riyadh, uh, we were met by a fleet of uh, armored cars and we were taken straight to a hotel uh, where General Sir Peter de la Billiere, who was commanding all the Gulf forces, was waiting for us. So we walked in and uh, in his pretty laid back manner, he said, CGS, Chief of General Staff, CGS, welcome, come sit down, we're, we're going straight on with the briefing. So, I mean, we didn't just got off this flight, but we all sat in chairs and uh, there was enormous screens in front of us with the maps laid out and masses of staff officers with uh, computers at desks all around the place. And General Peter started his briefing. Well, about two minutes into the briefing, an air raid siren went off. And calm as a cucumber, General Peter said, um, uh, that'll be a number of scuds taking off from uh, Baghdad. Uh, flight time is about four and a half minutes, so put on your NBC kit. And we all sort of looked, and <laughs> the staff officers threw theirs on in a matter of seconds. Um, we managed to do much the same, but uh, there were a couple of senior officers who still had their um, NBC kit in the plastic wrapping with the elastic bands around it. Um, and I have to tell you that the all-clear went before they managed to get their kit on, um, which was highly amusing to everybody concerned. But um, they were genuine scuds, but they were shot down by my American air defense systems before they reached uh, Riyadh. So that was quite interesting. Must have focused a few mines about the NBC drills. Mine as well, I have to add. <laughs> um, I mean, climbing, climbing off a first-class seat on a jumbo jet and being faced with a Scud missile and putting on your NBC kit in about a minute uh, is, is pretty bizarre. Our first casualty uh, in Granby in the Gulf War was when we were down collecting our equipment at the dockside. And there was a scud alert, and Evdiv was putting the respirators on, diving for overhead cover. And one of the lads uh, almost scalped himself um, getting under this trailer. Um, and uh, he ended up getting Kazivak back to the UK. I bet he did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'd, I'd just like to point out to everyone else that I've never flown to any operation first class <laughs> on the front of a jumbo jet. I'm using the back, hold it on for dear life. You're not the only one, <laughs> normally. So what was your final appointment, General? Well, it was a thing called VMGO, the Vice Master General of the Ordnance, which was renamed pretty quickly as DGLFS, Director General Land Fighting Systems, which embraced any system from any of the services which was going to be uh, used on the ground as opposed to on board ship or in an aircraft. So uh, DGLFS, Director General Land Fighting Systems, my last appointment. Again, Ministry of Defence. And the first challenge that hit me was to appear before the House of Commons Defence Committee. You see it on television these days, a sort of 
a horseshoe-shaped desk with MPs sitting around it, and a desk in front where there's um, the the witness being intimidated. And I faced some pretty vitriolic questioning on SA-80s, that's small arms for the 80, the rifle, on its fitness for service. But uh, as you heard earlier, I was the program director. I'd done all the trials. And uh, during the Gulf War, I'd visited the Staffordshire Regiment um, uh, in a, a base I had a peculiar name, I can't remember, um, just south of Kuwait, uh, where they were uh, sharpening up just before, before crossing the border into Kuwait when we uh, pushed Saddam out. But it was very interesting, uh, the Staffordshire Regiment were complaining bitterly about the SA-80 and how the thing was jamming uh, every time they fired it. Uh, so I went to their um, training range, and sure enough, uh, after about three or four rounds, the SA-80s were jamming. And I couldn't understand it because it just didn't seem right. And then I spoke to their um, QMSI, Quartermaster Sergeant Instructor, uh, their weapons training man, who had been telling the soldiers not to oil their weapons because oil and sand don't mix well, he said. And of course, he's quite right. Oil and sand don't mix well. But he'd been brought up years ago on the old, um, uh, the Enfield number four. Uh, and they had, uh, well, none of you listening probably will remember, but they had pretty slack moving parts. They rattled up and down the, the breach, and there was plenty of space for sand to get in there, uh, and so um, oil was not used then. But the SA-80 was altogether different. It was a fine tolerance, uh, cleverly manufactured weapon, and there was minimum spacing, if you like, between the sliding parts. The space between the parts that moved up and down the breach is even smaller than a grain of sand. So um, naturally, these bit, these uh, two blocks of metal would expand in the heat, which would make the sliding parts even tighter. It was therefore very important to put oil in there to make them move backwards and forwards. If you didn't, they would jam. So, problem solved. We ordered that the SA-80s were to be oiled, notwithstanding the QMSI's advice, and uh, the SA-80s worked perfectly. But, of course, they'd already attracted a bad press. Uh, and it's very difficult, uh, once you've got a bad press, to, to get over that. I remember taking a, a parade inspection one day uh, on, a, on a square in Catterick or somewhere, um, and I asked the soldier what he thought of SA-80s. Rubbish, he replied. The magazine keeps falling off and other bits to it. It's absolutely hopeless. I told him that I found that story uh, pretty strange, so I asked him, uh, much to the horror of his company commander who was accompanying me round, I said, hold out your rifle in front of you and drop it onto the parade ground. Well, he looked aghast, but he complied. It bounced and nothing fell off, so I said, do it again. And again he dropped the SA-80, and again nothing fell off. And I said, have I not made my point? I don't, simply don't believe your story. All you're doing is picking up the bad press which the poor rifle has got. So there it was. Um, so I retired in 1995 after almost 40 years service, uh, although by this time I'd already become the Honorary Colonel of 5th Regiment, uh, a post I was fortunate enough to have for 18 years, uh, the longest serving Honorary Colonel in the Gunners, I think. And I thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it. It's funny you mentioned about the issues on up Granby in the desert because I remember that confusion there about whether weapons should be left dry, should be left oiled. Um, and in the end, uh, the oil solution was the one that worked and certainly reduced the stoppages. Um, and certainly the, the A2 version of the SA-80, after its makeover by Hitler and Koch, uh, made significant improvements. Um, I don't think it's as a, a well-loved weapon, but I think um, 
other weapon systems have had similar introduction problems, and the M16 had a really hellish introduction uh, over in Vietnam. It was issued with no cleaning kits or maintenance manuals. The soldiers and marines over there were told it was a self-cleaning weapon. And there's a number of US Marine Corps and Army after-action reports made for some shocking reading with dead marines and soldiers found with a weapon field strip as they're desperately trying to clean it. Uh, likewise, they turned it round, and you know you, you see the M16 now, and many its derivatives have developed into a respected rifle used by many SF units. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think the SA80, well, not in that league. Uh, I mean, I never used it in Afghanistan because I didn't serve in Afghanistan. But I don't know what the lads who've served in Afghanistan thought of it after its, um, you know, after its makeover. Perhaps we can ask somebody later on in the, in the series. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good. Yeah, I imagine though, I mean, when we moved from the number four, the Leanfield number four to the SLR, There'd have been some old and bold saying that this was not the right move, even though the SLR was obviously a superior rifle, especially for the for the twentieth century. I think it's, it's, I think I think with weapons, everyone looks at other nations with weapon envy, thinking they've got a better system. Um, mm. There's a little bit of that, I think. Well, originally, of course, we wanted to go uh, when we were replacing the SLR. We wanted to go to the smallest caliber possible. And uh, the wisdom of the day was 4.85 millimeters rather than 5.56. But uh, interestingly, uh, the capillary action of water, um, particularly water in a barrel, means that if you're uh, down to a caliber of 4.85 millimeters, a, a globule of water will not flow down the barrel. It sticks to both sides. And you could end up, if your weapon is, is wet, you could have, end up with water in the barrel, which you cannot remove unless you shake the barrel or unless you fire around. And, of course, if you fire around, um, there's every possibility the thing will burst. So 4.85 was ruled out, and we, we moved up to 5.56. I shouldn't be saying this. I'm a gunner, not, a, not an infantryman. <laughs> so in, in 2022, um, we'll be celebrating the 40th anniversary of the fan of the Special OPs. What we'd like to do in this section is explore the origins of this organisation, how and why you set it up, and generally to hear your thoughts about its role today, compared with how it was at the beginning. Uh, well, casting back to when I became uh, commanding officer of 5th Regiment in 1980, the regiment was that time, at that time stationed in Hildesheim in West Germany, in the foothills of the Hearts and Mountains and close to the IGB, the Inner German Border, or Iron Curtain, as it was also known. Uh, Churchill, you will recall, christened it the Iron Curtain. 
uh, just after the uh, the Second World War. And it ran uh, for something like 4,000 miles. If you take the bit up between Finland uh, and the west and then down around Greece, I mean, it sealed off uh, the uh, whole of the um, eastern side, uh, the communist side of Europe from the west. Well, 1980 then, we were at the height of that so-called Cold War between the West and the Warsaw Pact Communist Eastern Europe, that's to say uh, the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, uh, which is essentially Russia and its satellite countries. Now, the closest of them was East Germany, just the other side of that Iron Curtain. And the regiment at the time, 5th Regiment at the time, was pretty large, about 650 strong. It was the Corps General Support Artillery Regiment, and it consisted of four batteries, 18 battery, K, P and Q batteries, each of which had six M107 self-propelled guns, American guns. So a complement of 24 very powerful guns with a huge range and a devastating impact. And we, of course, were the furthest forward artillery of the 1st British Corps, which was then part of the Northern Army Group facing the Warsaw Pact. It's interesting as well about how I don't think people appreciate the size of the British Army back then uh, in, in sort of the, the 80s. I mean, the Army uh, as a whole was 155,000 strong, and I think it's about 80,000 these days. Yeah. Uh, and there was 55,000 soldiers in Germany alone in the British Army of the Rhine over there. Uh, tactical nuclear weapons were held by 50 missile regiment in the Royal Artillery, and also each of the gun batteries, the longer-range guns, had a gun that was equipped to fire nuclear shells. Um, so a very different setup to what we have today. Uh, and in essence, if I recall rightly, rightly, in general, you might correct me here, there was about three British divisions that would face 3rd Shock Army, which had four tank divisions and a motor rifle division. Well, we could produce four divisions on the day, but uh, essentially it was three to start with, yes. Yeah. So Amazing. So, General, would... Tell me a little bit more about the regiment and how it hoped to take on this task. Well, sitting in uh, Hildesheim, our role at that time <clears throat> was to deploy to forward gun positions, that's further east from Hildesheim, closer to the IGB, the inner German border, facing east uh, with the aim of engaging the expected enemy armoured onslaught, which would signal the beginning, essentially, of World War III. Now, the enemy was comprised of the Warsaw Pact's Third Shock Army, uh, which was expected to cross that Iron Curtain at the outbreak of the war and race westwards for the Channel ports. And we believed it would consist of many armoured divisions of mass tanks, mostly Russian but also East German tanks, and it, it was a pretty formidable force, which in reality we had little hope of defeating conventionally. conventionally. Our aim, therefore, was to delay this attack as part of the North Ag defence for seven days so as to allow international negotiations to take place in the hope of reducing the possibility of all-out nuclear war beginning. So um, looking at uh, acquiring and observing targets, how did you envisage that at the time? Um, well, I'll come on to that later, but um, a little bit more about how the regiment hoped to take on the threat first. Um, the 24 guns were a formidable force. I mean, each gun weighed about 30 tonnes when fully laden. And it had a barrel which is some 35 feet or 10 meters long. Uh, the guns had a maximum range of 40 kilometers, firing a 68 kilogram shell. That's 10 stone in old money, a huge shell. The crew of the gun was 13, but even so, the rate of fire was pretty slow, about one round a minute. So targets were to be simultaneously engaged by all 24 guns firing together. 
um, which at the target end effectively destroyed a complete grid square and everything in it. But there were significant problems, clearly. First, we couldn't see the potential targets, which were the other side of the inner German border in East Germany. We, we postulated that they'd be forming up in the Magdeburg training area in East Germany. But we were likely to be the first artillery to fire at the beginning of World War III, and we needed to create a significant disruption to that advancing enemy. But we couldn't afford to waste effort on predicted targets. There was simply no point in trying to guess where the targets might be and, and firing over, because not least we would be um, uh, intercepted in the sense that uh, our artillery would be located and we were then pretty vulnerable. Um, so how did the quite observe the targets then? Well, as predicted, fire across the IGB into East Germany was a waste of time because we had no means of seeing the targets. We did not need the guns to be deployed so far forward. However, the OPs did have to be forward, uh, forward as possible, really, so as to be able to achieve target rounds at the first and every subsequent opportunity if we were going to have any hope of achieving our aim of delaying the enemy. But no targets, as I said, could be seen until they approached or crossed the end of German border. And at that moment, you can imagine, divisions were the tanks moving at high speed with tremendous momentum. And, uh, well, it would be a, a pretty impossible task to, to take that all on. Um, and so we had to do some rethinking. Uh, I mean, we couldn't really stop them with mines, air power, any other uh, delaying tactic. We could only really engage them with guns. Uh, and our OPs would be run over pretty quickly, and the guns would be pretty ineffective at uh, disrupting them without the OPs. So um, my thinking was pretty influenced at this time, uh, and we had to think about something else. I mentioned the vulnerability of our guns to CB fire, and that really meant that instead of deploying up close to the IGB, we should pull back about 25 to 30 kilometers, in my view, so as to be out of range of the enemy artillery, which of course was deployed in East Germany. But they could come up to their side of the border and take us out piecemeal if, they, if we started firing too close. So recognizing that all OPs are extremely vulnerable to an advancing enemy in, in any sort of scenario, what I thought we needed was completely concealed OPs deployed right up against the IGB and allowing the advancing enemy armor to pass over them so that they were then right in amongst the enemy tanks and could, with extreme accuracy, direct our fire onto them, as well, of course, as onto themselves. It's almost a suicide mission, and that would require some pretty special OPs indeed. Uh, survivability was obviously the key issue, and this could only be achieved by having OPs dug in underground along the IGB and in depth behind the forward OPs. It's an interesting concept, and uh, it's been used in various um Guises in history as well. I mean, in World War Two, there was a a concept called the auxiliars, and that was patrols of five to eight men, usually as part of the home guard, and they were usually landowners and farmers, and they had specially constructed underground operational bases uh, made by the Royal Engineers, from which they conduct sort of harassing operations against the occupying Germans. And then in the early sixties, you had the special recce squadron of the, Ari uh, the Royal Armoured Corps. Uh, they were only around for a short period of time, from 1962 to 64. And actually, the selection training uh, was a very similar setup to special observers. And their role was disbanded and given to 2-3 SES. And then this formed the basis of the core patrol unit, which uh, the general was going to discuss later. But 
Had you um, heard of the special recce squadron of the Royal Armoured Corps General at all? Yes, I have, but uh, the the army at that time, well, it still is to a certain extent, but but then it was pretty tribal. Um, The Armoured Recce Corps uh, were a little force unto themselves. They thought they were pretty elite. They did their own thing. Uh, We thought we were elite. We did our own thing. And then, of course, there was the Corps Patrol Unit also doing its own thing. So there wasn't a great deal of uh, coordination amongst us all uh, in, in those days. I mean, the, the state of the eye roll, I mean, it's a, it's a radical suggestion at the peak of the Cold War. How did you present the concept to the chain of command? Well, my original thoughts were a bit off the wall in the sense that uh, I was flying in the face of a, a pretty well-established Northern Army Group and certainly First British Corps um, concept of operations. So. I had to write a military paper, um, convert it into a workable argument that would stand scrutiny. Uh, and so I did all that as commanding officer of fifth. But I was, as I mentioned right at the beginning, uh, the, the core artillery uh, regiment. And so I felt uh, a certain responsibility uh, in that role. So I presented my paper to the corps commander at the time, a, a lovely man, interesting man called General Sir Nigel Bagnall. He was a fiery, red-headed cavalryman. Uh, He had a very, very short fuse. Uh, And I was sent for, uh, and uh, he pulled me into the office. Uh, No coffee, uh, but a fairly intense interview. And uh, quite a lot of uh, questions, but he thought the idea was sound. And in the end, much to my surprise, he simply said, right, get on with it. So there it was. Um, He didn't consult his staff. He didn't... uh, uh, have the paper sent round to be discussed with anybody, he said, get on with it. So that's what we did. So at that time, though, if I'm right, uh, one of the batches was being taken away from five regiment, obviously reducing the number of guns and firepower. So was, how, was that, how was that impacting on the effectiveness of five regiment to deliver this effect? Well, to, to the outside world, it didn't make, didn't make any sense at all getting rid of... Uh, one battery from the regiment when we were the important regiment, the first to fire probably in World War Three. But what nobody realised that I'd been advised confidentially by the MGRA, that's the Major General Royal Artillery, the senior gunner in Germany, that 5th Regiment was likely to be org- reorganised uh, within a year or so uh, as a three-battery Royal Horse Artillery Regiment with its three M107 gun batteries being replaced by the new multiple launch rocket system, which almost had almost double the range of the M107. So um, it was necessary, therefore, to, to shed 18 battery, because obviously horse artillery regiments consist only of letter batteries. And given that KP and Q were already in the regiment as letter batteries, and given that the MLRS was a much more formidable weapon than the M107, it made sense that 18 battery should leave us. Um, and so we press on with that in mind. But of course, MLRS never came to 5th Regiment. Uh, but then the Berlin Wall came down, so it all uh, came to nothing anyway. Going back slightly to the Stabby Iron Roll, why couldn't at the time the existing Special Forces or Formation Recce, uh, noting the cap badge uh, rivalries, why couldn't they be used to find high-value artillery targets for the depth fire? Well, first of all, 22 SAS, uh, the only regular uh, element, they were completely committed to top secret operations about which uh, we all knew nothing. But there was at that time an organization known as the Corps Patrol Unit, and this consisted of territorial soldiers from 
the two TA SAS regiments, 21 and 23, as well as the Honourable Artillery Company uh, from uh, London. And these, I originally thought, could form the basis for our specialised OP organisation, but unfortunately the SAS units had much higher priority intelligence information and the HAC were neither under command nor integrated into our order of battle. And furthermore, uh, as TA soldiers, their availability and training at that time didn't match our requirements. So effectively, we had to start from scratch. Where did you concede that you were going to find the, the appropriate or well-trained soldiers for this concept? Well, that was pretty difficult. But as um, Colin mentioned, the size of the British Army was uh, enormous in those days. 155,000, uh, of whom a huge proportion were gunners. Um, and uh, we originally um, were, com- were tied to taking um, uh, people from the gunners. But to go back to selection and training, um, a potentially a very elite force, and it was a major problem, therefore, uh, working out how to do this. And there was nobody in charge from whom I could seek advice. So I started, first of all, to go to all three centres of excellence for special forces. Uh, I started with Hereford. Uh, where I witnessed um, a selection course there, or part of it, and how they did it, and they told me all about what they were looking for. I then went to uh, Limpston, to the Royal Marines, uh, and went through a similar exercise, and finally to the Paris in Aldershot, of which I had some experience through my own time in, in Seminar HA. Now, I studied each of their methods of selection, and eventually focused on adapting the Hereford selection course, which I thought most likely to produce the sort of soldiers that uh, I was looking for. That said... Uh, they all had something to offer, and so I thought it useful if I sought from MOD agreement that I got permanent staff instructors, PSIs, from the SAS, from the Royal Marines, and from the Paras to run our selection courses for us. It's interesting that, from my recollection of my time in the Army and the, the Royal Artillery back in the 80s, the Royal Artillery was very traditional at this time in its outlook, uh, and I wouldn't have thought it would have viewed this concept all too enthusiastically. What was your experience when you started sort of saying this is what you wanted to do? Well, um, Colin, it wasn't only uh, my experience at the start. Uh, Even when in the year I retired in 1995, I was still fighting week after week with successive commanding officers uh, to keep the special OPs in the order of battle. And our greatest enemy, sadly, was the Royal Regiment of Artillery. Um, their attitude, and certainly many of the senior officers in uh, in the Gunners, was that we have our own commander regiment, 2-9. We have our own parachute regiment, 7-RHA. We've got our own specialist um, uh, 148 battery. What the hell do we need um, a special OP battery for? And it's been a constant battle keeping them in the order of battle, uh, and I think probably still is. The present commanding officer is no doubt dreading the big defence review, which is about to take place uh, in the next month or so, uh, when the size of the British forces, Navy, Army and Air Force, will be cut yet again, I suspect, and people will be looking for um, capabilities which they think they don't need. Uh, I think they couldn't be more wrong. The special OPs have a wide utility, which we might touch on later. Yeah, I certainly agree. I certainly punch. I hate, I hate that phrase "punches above your weight" because it's often used out of context. But I think uh, certainly value for money um, has always been delivered by the special observers, and we'll touch on that in future episodes because pretty much been involved in every major land operation since uh, conception. So, looking at the stay behind role 
the Special Observer Soldier. What was you looking for from the volunteers? I, for, I mean, for the stay-behind role at that time, which was, like, as you say, was hugely dangerous. Well, the qualities that I believe our volunteers would need, and all of them, incidentally, had to be fully trained soldiers with some experience under, the belt, under their belt before they started, the qualities I believe they need were, first and foremost, absolute dedication, uh, a commitment to the task that, that wouldn't falter. Uh, then determination and self-belief. Uh, you've got to really understand what you're capable of and what you're not capable of. But self-belief is very important. The ability to work in a, in a small and close-knit team uh, and recognizing that the expertise was shared across the team and not necessarily held by every member. So you needed mutual respect in each other's ability, regardless of rank. It must be quite clear uh, by the commander of a six-man patrol that his most junior soldier might have some particular skill which none of the others uh, had. And so great respect had to be uh, acknowledged for the skill that that individual might have. And then a professionalism that guaranteed self-discipline of the highest standard. I mean, all in all, not much to, not much to ask, really. <laughs> and I think, to be fair, those, those qualities are probably still stand today. And I think any young soldier in 473 Battery today could identify with those qualities even now. Yeah. I recall, um, I think it was probably course number one back in Hildesheim, one of the PSIs responsible for writing the joining instructions to send out to uh, potential uh, OPs. Uh, he said, we must give a reporting time on the sports field in Hildesheim of 09.43 hours. And I said, what? What an extraordinary time. 09.43? What on earth do you want them to turn up at that time for? Well, he replied, if, if they turn up at 09.40, or 0945, they clearly didn't read the bloody instruction and they're not what we want. They <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, fair comment, I suppose. I mean, in, in later episodes, we are going to cover the, the initial selection, course one, and the training. And, and then in future episodes, we're also going to bring the battery uh, in to talk about the current course as well. But what were your thoughts on the contents of the first courses? Well, as we've alluded to uh, throughout this uh, chat, these people had to be pretty special indeed. So after initial selection, that the, uh, the selection course which uh, got them past the first hurdle, we would need a continuation course, quite a long one, which had to include specialist skills such as escape and evasion, resistance to interrogation, advanced field craft, specialist high-frequency communications, advanced medical skills, and really a host of other top-class qualifications for soldiers from whom a very great deal was going to be expected. Uh, and as you suggest, these will be covered in detail by other guests, so I won't dwell on the, on the course itself. Better these details come someone who actually took place, uh, took part in the course uh, and survived it, and some of those will be, you'll be talking to later, I'm sure. Yeah, the Colin Nairum of selection, well, it, it's uh, ingrained, I think, in everybody who completes the course. But where was, you, where was you expecting to get the initial soldiers from? Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, initially we could only seek volunteers from within the gunners. And although there were a lot of gunners around, um, we did have competition. Uh, 7RHA wanted potential parachutists, 29 Commando wanted potential Marines, and 148 Battery uh, wanted a mixture of both. And they were, of course, all well-established and well-known organisations in the Army. And we, of course, were a fairly secret organisation. We weren't able to advertise. So it was, it was hellish difficult and a real struggle to be able to look for people. Uh, we couldn't produce uh, banners and advertisements and uh, things in magazines saying what we were. We just had to do it by word of mouth. 
uh, and so it was pretty hard. But over time, um, we were uniquely in the British Army permitted to recruit from all army units and eventually from the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force too, provided they had the necessary aptitude and drive. And all of them were required to change their cap badge. And so following selection course number one, what was initially called the Stay Behind Special OP Troop was born. And that was effectively concealed within the regiment's headquarter battery as a covert subunit. And the only, the only real sign of our existence um, was a small OP triangle awarded on successful completion of the course and worn on the arm of all sets of uniform that special OPs had. And really only the sharp-eyed or inquisitive would notice that the dot within the OP triangle is displaced upwards so as to distinguish it from a rather ordinary OP. I remember when I turned up in 89, I mean, we had some specialist kit, but we didn't have a lot of specialist equipment. So from the from day one, what's, how did you identify what special equipment was needed and how did you acquire it? Well, uh, you will recall I was commanding officer at this time, uh, and that's a pretty busy job. And although I was passionate about this stay-behind troop, which I had conceived and got off the ground, uh, it couldn't take up all my time. So I had two wonderful um, quartermasters, my brilliant technical QM, uh, Major Gavin Hamilton, uh, although he didn't understand the little outfit he was um, trying to equip, he was a great marathon runner, extremely fit and single-minded in individual who really took the lead in begging, borrowing and stealing whatever he could find for this small unit. Uh, and the Mexi shelter, I don't know where it came from or how he got hold of it, but it was really home from home. Um, but digging it in was a problem. And so another sharp-eyed individual might spot that the rear, rear wheel of the Land Rovers had a sort of um, thing sticking out on the hub, which was a, um, uh, a sort of mini winch, um, which fitted, uh, enabled the winch, winch to go down into the deep holes in which the Mexi were sighted, and so get out all the earth. And eventually we got a, a mini JCB, which uh, fitted into a half-ton trailer, a remarkable bit of kit, which was designed uh, at the outset, I understand, for um, putting swimming pools into uh, smart houses in London, which only had a front door. So this mini JCB had to go the through the front door into the back garden to do all the digging. Well, somebody discovered this, and uh, we eventually had them for the special APs. Ironically, some of the Mexies, if you got the location wrong, could have a little indoor swimming pool unintentionally in the bottom <laughs> of it as well. Yeah, I'm sure. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Swimming was definitely a requirement. <laughs> Yeah, so there we are. But the other side, the, the, the very other strange equipment we had, deodorizers, special ration packs, disposable waste bags. That was uh, uh, my um, my other talented principal quartermaster, David Thomas, who was also wonderful. I'm a bit thin on detail there because um, having got this thing off the ground and the selection course running, PSIs in place uh, and so on, uh, I handed over all the running of that to um, other people, not least the uh, the chap running the courses. I think there wasn't actually, I mean, Kev will back me up on this, when, when you turned up and, and passed the selection course, there actually wasn't that much special equipment. It tended to be kit that was in use and nothing really specific to us. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but for a young soldier turning up there at that time, uh, the the main freedoms you got were the ability to wear more or less, much to the chagrin of quite a few RSMs, what equipment is, like smocks, jungle trousers, your belt kit, the way you wanted it. Yeah. And perhaps the only bit of sort of specialist weaponry you had was the silenced SMG. 
which if you yeah. fired too quickly, you had to have a put a woolly hat round the suppressor because <laughs> otherwise your hand would get burnt. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think, I think I think on the equipment side, I think most equipment was across the uh, you know, the British Army. But what we had the ability or seemed to have was we were taking equipment from other cab badges or the units, which were used it in one type of role, putting it all together for our Pacific role, and we had the ability to make it work, to adapt That's it, right. make it work, and have a bit of agility with thinking. But it's interesting, think, thinking back to those original days uh, and looking at the battery now and the equipment it's got, it's absolutely unbelievable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Fantastic some of the best, stuff now. best equipment in the world today. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, and that's why the, back then, battery soldiers looked quite a bit different to the contemporaries. But it's a, it's a measure of how good the equipment is these days that patrol soldiers from 473 don't look that different from the contemporaries in a gun battery, really. You know, I mean, a lot, yeah. a lot of it is very similar because the equipment yeah. is that good. But interestingly, uh, General, you talked about all the digging in. And on, the, on our Facebook page, um, we've got a sequence of photographs that shows you how Amexi was dug in and the sheer size of it. it was about 15 feet deep it dispelled a lot of spoil but bearing in mind the contemporary uh, environment working with casualty risk aversion and even the health and safety culture we have these days do you think the stay behind concept would even get off the paper in this day and age probably not no <laughs> um, it's very interesting to think what might happen if you tried to do that today I think uh uh, the concept of a mexi is probably um, unlikely to be the primary thought that people would adopt today, and, and there would be much more in the way of electronics. Um, but I think it's important to realise the unique ability of an individual soldier in this surveillance and acquisition business, and, and we might touch on that um, perhaps later on. So since the concept, since the Cold War... <coughs> How have things changed? How relevant is the old role in today's world? And with the subsequent re uh, new skills that the battery holds? Well, I think the Balkans, Iraq and Afghanistan had a very significant impact on the utility of special OPs and they continue to develop all through those campaigns, improving uh, in terms of their role, their equipment, uh, and enlarging people's um, thought processes and what these soldiers were capable of. Their, their particular skills were extremely available and they were not really, sorry, extremely valuable and not really available from any other part of the army. Um, but those particular wars, Balkans, Iraq and Afghanistan, are probably going to be covered by some of your guest OPs who actually took part in them, so I won't comment there. Suffice to say that I think the important point to keep hold of is that it is the eyes, the ears, the experience and the instant decision-making ability of a specially trained OP soldier that are second to none in the process of high-quality surveillance and target decision. This man in the loop, and not a man in the loop uh, on a radio or on some vision equipment through uh, a UAV, but somebody who's actually there on the ground, real-time intelligence and accurate identification provided by such soldiers are vital if you want surveillance missions and precision targets to be carried out uh, properly. And certainly while collateral damage is to be avoided, even modern technology can't be relied on to achieve that uh, in warfare that today is conducted within areas filled with non-combatant personnel. You need the man on the ground very, very close to the action. And as I say, the required results can only really be, really be achieved by soldiers who are able to carry out that role while deployed very close to their targets 
and are able with eyes on to prosecute or abort their mission at the very last minute. And it follows, as I see it, that special OPs will remain very much in demand for a wide range of extremely difficult and unconventional missions for the foreseeable future. And I wish them well. General, thank you for your time this afternoon and for sharing your experiences with us and our listeners. And before we close, as part of our new closing element, we have Desert Island Dits with a military twist. So please, the three items that you would take, your, your favourite book, your favourite film, and a luxury-based item. Right, well, <clears throat> taking the book first, uh, I'd really go for um, Red Notice, the story of Bill Browder. True story, um, which if none of you have heard of him, uh, he was the founder and chief executive of Hermitage Capital Management, a sort of uh, foreign investor company in Russia. Um, and I think I choose that book because it covers three qualities which are required of a special OP. And the first is bravery. Bill Browder was an extreme, well, is. I mean, he's still alive. There's a red notice out for him. He's in hiding in England. Uh, and the KGB or its successors, uh, the FSB, are still looking for him. And a red notice means that he could be arrested at any time, taken back to Russia and executed, as was uh, his lawyer, Sergei um, Magnitsky. And there is even now a Magnitsky law, uh, which talks about um, confiscating assets that uh, that um, uh, oligarchs and people have. So bravery is first. Bill Browder is an extremely brave man, and bravery is a fundamental requirement of special OPs. And second is self-belief. Bill Browder believed in everything he was doing. He was determined that as Putin was his enemy, he was going to beat him. And to all extent and purposes, he has done so uh, throughout his career. He hasn't deposed, obviously, um, uh, Putin, but he's got Putin on the back foot in that he, Bill Browder, has survived uh, through sheer self-belief in his, in his work in uncovering the corruption in Russia. And the third element uh, is trust. Um, Bill Browder had a very close team around him, and he, he trusted them implicitly, and they never let him down. Uh, it was remarkable that uh, he actually got out of Russia and he's still alive today. So my book, Red Notice by Bill Browder. Very interesting that. And as well, when you think about the reach that, that Putin's got with what happened in Sol, uh, Salisbury with the Novichok incident and the fact that he's still been hunted now, it um, must be a very tenuous existence for that man. Very hard. I don't know how he survives. Um, but uh, he does, and he's, he's still continuing. I mean, he appears on television. I saw him on television last week, um, still criticizing Putin and all that Putin represents. Uh, he was in some secret location, but uh, remarkable. A brave man, self-belief, and very trustworthy. Film, General? Well, this is going back a long way. Uh, 1955, um, and the film is uh, The Dambusters. And again, there are three particular qualities in that film which uh, pick up qualities which I like to think the special OPs uh, um, uh, have. And the first is unconventional thinking. Um, pretty unconventional, if you like, to um, design a bomb which is going to bounce across the top of a reservoir and eventually hit the dam, sink and blow up. I mean, that is remarkable thinking, off the wall thinking, lateral thinking of an extreme kind. 
Uh, a second uh, unconventional thought process which emerged was, you will recall that the Lancasters flying over the dam had great difficulty flying at an exact height above the water, which they needed to be if the bouncing bombs were to bounce properly to reach their target. Now, the altimeter didn't work awfully well up in the mountains around uh, where those rivers were, um, lakes were. And so uh, on a visit to the theatre, um, uh, one of the team noticed that spotlights up in the, uh, the back of the theatre were shining down on the stage. And he suddenly realised with a bit of geometry, if you put um, spotlights on the wings of the Lancaster and shine them inwards and downwards till they formed a circle on the top of the lake, if the two circles became coincident, then the aircraft was at a particular height, whichever height you'd set it at, and provided you kept those two circles coincident and flew the length of the lake, you'd stay at exactly the right height all the time. So another great piece of unconventional thinking, which the special OBs need to adapt uh, in the situations in which they find themselves. And you'll no doubt here in Afghanistan and Iraq, they did some pretty unconventional stuff. Teamwork. Um, all the team in a, in a Lancaster depend on each other utterly, as do special OPs. So uh, teamwork is frantically important for them, and as is determination. Um, they went round and round over those lakes being shot at, determined that they were going to complete their task. And, of course, they did. Remarkable now, as well. Oh, sorry, General. I was just saying remarkable that most of those guys were in their early 20s, and I think Wing Commander Gibson was probably only about 25 in that raid, I think. Yeah, I was going to yep. say that. Yep. All, yep. And, and they were all mega experienced as well, because yeah. he was awarded the VC for that, but he'd already won Distinguished Flying Cross and such like before that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, amazing cruise. Right, a luxury. Luxury item. Well, this um, this really hops uh, around the, the Brecon Beacons, well known to all special OPs. Um, the number of times they've walked over them, run over them, climbed them, myself included. Uh, the Brecon Beacons have a special, um, a special place in our life, if you like. Um, what is not largely known is at the southern end of the Brecon Beacons, there is a tiny village called Penderin. And in Penderin, there is a still in which they brew single malt Welsh whiskey. Now, I know Colin, being a Scotsman, is probably likely to be offended by this. <laughs> But um, uh, that's my luxury. And again, it reminds me of three features of special OP life. The first being self-discipline. Going across the Brecon Beacons requires a huge amount of self-discipline, not only in uh, believing in yourself on the route, taking into account the weather, understanding your limitations, and only doing what you're capable of doing, uh, rather than driving yourself into the ground and failing to complete whatever it is. And that, of course, requires patience as well. Um, you climb one peak of the beacons and there's another one facing you and then another and another. So you need enormous patience to get to the end. But when you do get to the end, particularly if you're walking south, you come across the reward of Penderin in the tiny village where you can have your single malt. So well, that's it. Even as a sceptical Scotsman, General, I will look forward to sharing a hip flask with you at the Cenotaph in November. I look forward to that too. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank well, you very much, General. Yeah, thank you, General. I'll just wrap up now. Just a couple of things I want to point out this week. I've, uh, I'm always trying to spread some interest. So there's been an excellent documentary on BBC iPlayer lately called Once Upon a Time in Iraq. I don't know if anybody's seen it. It's 
one of the best documentaries to get on the whole mess that's been made in Iraq. Uh, and some of the Iraqi civilians, the journalists appearing on it, some remarkable interviews. It's on BBC iPlay. If you get a chance to see it, have a look at that. And in the promoting other podcasts, there's a podcast out there called the Irregular Warfare Podcast, and it covers small wars, drone strikes, special operations forces, counterterrorism, proxy wars, and I'll publish the links to them, as well as the general's recommendations on the podcast notes. So that's it for this episode. Uh, please continue to send in your suggestions, and our email address and links to Facebook and Instagram are also on the pod notes. Uh, we'll shortly be on iTunes, and if you download from there, it'd be great if you could leave a review to help us spread the word. That's the most influential download site. But you can also download us on Google Podcasts and on the Podbean hosting site. On the next pod, we'll cover the early selection course and training, this time from the comfort of our chairs. And uh, finally, a huge thank you to Nick Beale for the technical support through his company ISA. So until the next time on The Unconventional Soldier, we'll see you later. 